Welcome to another episode of Strange Sound. I'm Joe. This is episode 25 of Strange Sound. Thank you for being with us. I've noticed a slight uptick in our listenership. Um, Very encouraging. So glad to have someone listening to this podcast so that I'm not just talking to myself. I hate talking to myself. I know exactly what I'm going to say even before I say it. It's like, I don't know, an intelligence takes hold of me. An alien intelligence. Anyway, I won't go into that. But, uh, suffice to say, glad glad to be with you. Um, it's another week in August. And colleges are beginning to open and then close again. You all know the story. Um, The uh, COVID-19 death toll is above 170,000 in the United States and growing rapidly. I heard someone report the statistic just, I think it was yesterday. There's somebody on the news um, saying that we had over a thousand deaths from covid over the past day, and in European countries, uh, a group of European countries that have an equivalent population to the United States, uh, the number of cumulative deaths between all of those countries was 60, which gives some idea of how far behind we are than those folks, Um, even though some of these countries are reporting upticks in the number of deaths, it's still, it's just not on the same scale. What we are experiencing right now is way beyond anything anyone else around the world is experiencing, with perhaps with the exception of Brazil. Um, a couple of places that are, that are getting close, but uh, this, this is just... We are taking the brunt of it right now. And it's pretty ugly, and you know it. Um, at the same time, we're experiencing something akin to the Great Depression as, as, as opposed to, well, I mean, certainly ordinary people are. Uh, people who have investments on Wall Street are doing just fine, as you can see from the skyrocketing um, stock market, which... The administration keeps um, crowing about and making that sound like that's basically synonymous with the American economy, even though very, very few Americans, relatively speaking, have any money in the stock market. It's really something that's reflective of the wealth and the influence of the 1% as opposed to the 99%. So we know what that means. Um 
the Trump administration seems to think that they can fool people into thinking that that means the economy is doing great when uh you know i i would think that anyone who isn't rich right now knows very well that the economy is definitely not doing great and everyone is feeling it to one degree or another some people a lot of people more than most um people who work on the bottom of the ladder um and scrape together a living they know how hard this is people who work in the informal economy restaurant workers um agricultural workers musicians artists um i could go on all these people are really suffering right now and no relief in sight because after all the stock market's doing great so who cares everything's archy as they used to say on television it's disgusting and you won't you know all about it i'm a bad source on this all i can do is express my outrage and god knows i do that enough so um by all means don't rely on me for the details <laughs> with regard to that just let it be known that uh, i am i am just as outraged as you are this is just a ridiculous situation. We should have never been here. Anyway, uh, here we are another week. What am I going to talk about today? Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about the concept of, ac- of accountability, particularly with respect to our leaders. Um, the fact that we have not held our leaders accountable for their actions and um, thereby... Uh, we see uh, repeat offenders all the time. <laughs> this is a pretty rudimentary pr- principle in uh, standard law enforcement. And I should say, this is something that uh, the likes of George W. Bush ran on in the year 2000, was the concept of, um, well, criminals need to know that there are consequences for their actions. I won't say that he said those exact words, but that was basically one of the primary arguments that he had in running for president was, hey, you know, we need the death penalty so that people understand that there are consequences. We need to have long sentences because people need to understand, criminals need to understand that there are consequences, right? I mean, it's it's the sort of rhetoric that has driven the, the so-called war on crime behind the crime bill. And I'm, this is a bipartisan thing. I'm not, I'm, I'm singling out George W. Bush here, but really there's a, there's a lot of people responsible for this. There's plenty of blame to go around, but he deserves a little extra blame. But let me put it this way. I worked in advertising for a number of years. I still kind of do. And, um, I can remember. And then in the, probably the late 90s, um, working at an agency and doing work for a judicial candidate who actually cut a uh, couple of television commercials. Uh, One of them I can remember uh, was basically this candidate speaking to the camera, talking about how, you know, criminals need to know that they'll be held accountable, that there's consequences for their actions, blah, blah, blah. Because that was the line that got people elected in judicial elections in those days. And it's it hasn't changed that much. It's basically the same thing. You're always going to get extra points for taking that 
that uh, attitude, right? Well, I mean, I'm just trying to take those people at their word, right? So my feeling about that was when I heard George W. Bush saying that, my feeling is, well, that should apply to him as well. That should apply to Dick Cheney as well. That should apply to any president, right? That should apply to our leaders as well when they when they do something that you can reasonably consider to be criminal and irresponsible. I mean, we know what George W. Bush did with his pal Dick Cheney and some other um, other assorted pals, including Colin Powell, who uh, <laughs> spoke at the Democratic National Convention this past week. Maybe a few of you saw that. They lied us into the Iraq War. They also sent us into Afghanistan, but that's, you know. I'll leave that for another discussion. That, too, was not an error in judgment, but a, um, a, a basically a criminal act and a, a really bad policy response to 9-11. But I won't, go, I won't get into that this time. I want to talk about Iraq because demonstrably those people lied about Iraq and that they had always, from the beginning, from before the beginning of their administration, they were determined to invade Iraq and overthrow the government of Iraq. I think this is pretty uncontroversial because people can remember during the Clinton administration, particularly in the later years of the Clinton administration from, you know, uh, 2016 on, the the arms inspectors being pulled out. Uh, Scott Ritter, some of you may remember. This was in 1998 when Clinton bombed Iraq that uh, I believe it was, if not, it's the second really prominent time that he did it. I mean, they bombed Iraq throughout the entire two terms of the Clinton administration at various points. But the one time when they really sort of laid it on them was in 1998. And that was also the year when they passed, when they passed and signed the resolution. I think it was a resolution regarding um, regime change, making regime change the uh, official policy in Iraq. Um, that was something that um, that uh, the Iraqi exile community, including uh, grifters like Ahmed Chalabi, had pushed for, um, finally got got that encoded into the American foreign policy and made regime change like the official policy. So I think we knew that the people who Bush was surrounding himself with were determined to uh, bring about regime change in Iraq. And certainly the Democrats were not really all that strong in opposition to that because it was adopted by a Democratic administration that was in the process of strangling Iraqis to death with a uh, siege-like sanction regime during the course of the 1990s um, that resulted in the deaths of 300,000 or more Iraqi children, preventable deaths that uh, 
were the direct result of sanctions. We know that the Bush-Cheney administration, when they won in 2000, when they were taking office in 2001, um, was determined to attack Iraq and bring about regime change. I won't go into the the reasons for this because um, they they had a lot of reasons, and admittedly, they you know they were very open about this. Wolfowitz himself said that you know they had a bunch of reasons, but they wanted to lead with stuff like um, weapons of mass destruction because they thought that would be the most compelling reason for them. Um, but I can remember, and I think I may have mentioned this on previous podcasts. Um, I can remember going to, uh, I was part of a, um, peace action group locally that would meet at the local, uh, Unitarian church periodically. Uh, we used to meet during, throughout the 1990s on, on a variety of, um, issues. And in early 2001, this is well before 9-11, uh, I went to a meeting that was attended by, um, a fellow named Shah Dalal, who is a professor at uh, area colleges, and he was a pretty well-known, well-connected um, Palestinian-American. He died several years ago, 2016, I believe. Um, very intelligent fellow. Um, I can remember him giving speeches in 1991 in the in the run-up to the Gulf War, um, advocating for, you know, not going to war <laughs> over this. Um, he he was a very well-connected person, had um, worked extensively in the Middle East. Sort of, uh, I believe, in the business world, you know, I, you know he had a lot of connections with um, diplomats and government officials. Um, he had lived, I believe, in Kuwait for, for a number of years, um, so he was pretty well-connected. Um, anyway, he came to this very small peace action group that we had at this local Unitarian church that is literally about two blocks away from my house in Utica. And uh, we had a little discussion about the incoming administration, and he said at that meeting that uh, we are going to invade Iraq. And this was in probably, I want to say like March or April of 2001. I mean, literally like a, a, a stretch of weeks into this new administration. It might have even been earlier than that. I don't honestly remember what the date was. But I remember being doubtful of this. I, I think I pushed back on it a little bit uh, because I could remember when Cheney was um, defense secretary in the first Bush administration, and he had... Um, argued against invading Iraq at that time because, um, well, for a variety of reasons, that he, he was really not real congenial to that idea. And my, my feeling was, well, you know, they probably won't want to do that because they prefer to have Saddam than to have, like, majority rule in Iraq, you know, because they think that that might not go their way. Um, they would really much prefer to just have... Saddamism without Saddam, to have some replacement for Saddam that wouldn't be Saddam Hussein. Um, but short of that, they'd be okay with just leaving Saddam Hussein in power and then just, 
using him as a bludgeon to hit the Iraqi people um, periodically. Uh, but uh, Shah was convinced, based on his knowledge of people in government and in the diplomatic corps and uh, just uh, very well-connected people, he was convinced that we were going to invade Iraq. And I was really doubtful. Um, it it was kind of unnerving, though, because I knew, I mean, Shah was a very, very brilliant man and very well connected. And it just seemed to me like he would know. <laughs> and he wasn't, you know, he wasn't going into detail as to why he knew, but he was, you know, quite definite about it. And I remember leaving that meeting thinking, ah, that's strange. I just don't know if I agree with that. And of course, later on, it turned out to be absolutely right. He was absolutely right, particularly with with Cheney. Um, but Bush Cheney were they were determined from the beginning to implement regime change in Iraq, and they set themselves about making the case for regime change. And that involved, I'm convinced of this, that involved torturing the living hell out of people, waterboarding people over a hundred times to get the story out of them that they wanted to get. Because in all honesty, we know this. Torture, when they say torture doesn't work, Trump says torture works. But, I mean, the very question of whether it works or doesn't work um, is predicated on what it is it's supposed to accomplish. That's always kind of left out of the equation. So, <laughs> does it work or doesn't it work is more a question of, well, does it, is it effective at producing what, right? It's not effective at producing the truth, if you're trying to get the truth out of, you know, the person that you have in your power, it's not effective at that at all. It is effective at getting what you want out of them, not the truth. Getting them to say what you want them to say. And that's exactly what they did. That's what they did with Al-Libi, who was the source for the the central claim that Saddam Hussein was involved with Al-Qaeda. They waterboarded the living shit out of that guy. And honestly, think about it, right? Why do you waterboard somebody 20, 30, 40, 50 times, 150 times? What the hell is the point of that? It's because you're not getting the thing you want. And you're demonstrating to them that it's going to keep happening until you say those words. That's exactly what they wanted and that's exactly what they got. And they used that to drive that war forward. And people signed on to it because it was politically expedient. I include Democrats in that, of course. John Kerry... Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, because they'd all seen 
they all had a, a long memory, right? And everybody remembered 1991 and 1990 when the vote for the Gulf War was split in the Senate. And those who voted for it benefited politically from it. And those who voted against it paid a price because the Gulf War went swimmingly. You know, they blew the living shit out of the place. And it was a great triumph. And everybody was real happy about that. And the senators who voted against it had egg on their face. And the senators who voted for it, you know, could clasp their hands over their heads. That was what they were remembering. I mean, this is in the wake of 9-11, of course. So it was, the, you know, everyone was on pins and needles, obviously. But Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, John Kerry, a bunch of other Democratic senators, and, you know, pretty much all the Republican senators, they all, you know, they all figured, well, this is going to go something like 1991. And we don't want to be on the wrong side of this because we're running for president one day. Turns out they calculated wrong. And it was a fatal calculation on the part of Hillary Clinton. She probably would have been president if she hadn't made that vote. Chances were good anyway. But back to accountability, right? There's no accountability for them either. But what accountability was there for George W. Bush and for Dick Cheney? And for all the other people that brought this about. What accountability is there for Colin Powell, who lied about this? I mean, nothing. At the end of that administration, when Obama took over, when Obama was elected and when he took over, he wanted to look forward, not look look ahead, not look back. And this is the way politicians, you know, behave. I mean, they're they're pretty much, you know, they don't want to be seen as you know, attacking their opponents on the other side to that extent. I mean, yeah, certainly prior to Trump, right? <laughs> they don't want to get caught up in that because they're afraid that it's going to turn into a sort of a back and forth, that what goes around comes around, right? So, you know, um, nobody paid a price. And because of that, Presidents are emboldened to, you know, act in any way they they choose. Now, there was a political price to the Iraq war that they hadn't anticipated. And it was it was costly and it did cost people politically. But that didn't necessarily restrain people from starting other stupid wars. I mean, Obama certainly, you know, went into Libya and almost went into Syria, but I mean, really did go into Syria indirectly, covertly, and didn't exactly leave Iraq and certainly not Afghanistan. Made it look like we were leaving Iraq, but we didn't really leave Iraq. No accountability, uh, no change. That's what happens. And that's, <laughs> look... You know, we're looking at this with Donald Trump, right? Donald Is Donald Trump going to be held accountable for how he has behaved with regard to the COVID-19 crisis? 
There are more than 170,000 people who died because of this. Because of his bad policy. Because he called it a hoax. Because he didn't take it seriously. Because he aped things that he heard on Fox News for months. And he still doesn't take it particularly seriously. He still thinks it's all going to go away. 170,000 people dead. Many, many thousands more grievously injured by this disease with life-changing illnesses and conditions that that fall out of this. Is he going to be held accountable? I think that's his main impetus for staying in power because he doesn't he doesn't see himself as being, you know, safe from prosecution. I'm not sure that he needs to worry about it because if I know the Democrats, they're probably not going to hold him accountable. I have to say the most, um, one of the most affecting moments, and it was, you know, I, I will just to give a brief review of the Democratic National Convention. Um, it was a nice TV show. I think a lot of things went pretty well. Some of it was just bizarre, like I couldn't figure out who some of the presenters were. Um, (laughs) It was a little strange in that respect, but it was a television show, right? It was like a long television commercial. But elements of it were pretty good. And there was one, one part, a young woman named Kristen Urquiza. I believe I'm pronouncing her name right, but correct me if I'm wrong. Kristen Urquiza, whose father had been a Trump supporter. Uh, she lives in Arizona. She and her father, her family live in Arizona. And her father had been a tremendous Trump supporter. He was about 65. Um, he believed Trump, you know, when he said that this was a hoax and that it was not all that serious and didn't have to worry about it. And, you know, basically... Don't take it too seriously. Uh, He went out to a karaoke bar. Um, He came back, got COVID, ended up in the hospital on a ventilator, and he died. He didn't have any underlying conditions. The way Kristen puts it um, in the video, and you can see the video online. Maybe I'll put a link on the uh, Strange Sound site so that you can see what I'm talking about if you haven't seen this. It's a very brief um, little piece of video. Uh, It's pretty affecting. Um, This Kristen has started an organization about this, looking for a kind of accountability. (laughs) But I mean, she's basically, she said his only, her father's only underlying condition was he believed Donald Trump. Where's the accountability in this? Who's going to pay the price for this? Is Donald Trump going to pay a price for this? If that was your father who died because of this stupidity that's being put out there by the President of the United States and by his enablers on Fox News and other outlets, you know, what? how would you feel about that? When this woman, Kristen Urquiza, um, made her statement during the Democratic National Convention, I, I watched that and it really it really touched me in a way um, because it, it's just the frustration of that must be unbearable. I have to say, you know, I just to 
share a little bit of family history. Uh, I have four siblings, um, three living, um, two sisters, one brother, Matt. Uh, Matt's in the band Big Green with me. Um, you can find out more about us at big-green.net. That's my promo. Um, we had an older brother uh, named Mark who uh, died in 1980. Um, he died in a car accident. He was rear-ended by somebody um, it, late at night on a road up in Maine, highway, um, somewhere between, I think, Portland and Brunswick, Maine. Um, he went off the road, car flipped, and he was left for dead by this person. This person was never caught or held accountable. Um, we never knew who who did this. The police up in Maine investigated um, in kind of a cursory fashion. Uh, the district attorney was a friend of my brother Mark's. Um, also, my brother Mark was a musician, a pianist, um, jazz pianist, and... Uh, this DA was also a part-time musician. A lot of people were up there back in those days. Um, they really didn't turn up anything. There were some some minor leads, but they didn't. Their investigation really didn't go anywhere. Um, and we were, you know, we were sort of caught up in just the loss of that um, experience. Uh, I. I know at the time I was not that concerned about who did it. It was just dealing with the fact that my brother wasn't there anymore. And that was certainly what my, my parents were taken up with as well. Um, but I say this just by way of saying I, I have an idea of what it feels like to um, lose a loved one because of the irresponsible actions of someone else and they're not being held accountable for that. Um, and I I was looking at this Kristen Urquiza woman and thinking, man, that must be, <laughs> she must look at Donald Trump and think, you know, you, you motherfucker. <laughs> and <laughs> is there going to be accountability for this? Is there going to be accountability for this? Now, I know what some people would say. It's like every president takes actions that result in the deaths of others. And this is true. I personally think we need to hold our politicians accountable. Part of it is just the seemingly boundless power of the presidency. If people don't feel a sense of personal accountability, I'm not sure what there is to restrain them. Aside from this vague sense of norms, um, governance, common practice, tradition, it's not enough to restrain someone. I've said it before and I'll say it again, I think Donald Trump is, is a uniquely dangerous president just because of the power of the presidency and because of the degree to which he is seriously unscrewed and doesn't have any real deep respect for the institution of government. Having said that, I mean, I think, a, you know, like Nixon was a big institutionalist. I'm sure he had respect for the institutions of government, but that didn't stop him from killing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people in Southeast Asia. 
to say nothing of the 25,000 or so American soldiers um, killed in Vietnam during his term. The only real accountability we can ever hope to see with these people is that they pay such a high political price that no one would dare go, dare follow the same path that they followed politically. And you'll notice that people after the Iraq war, because not so much because of the horror of it, but because of the political cost it it imposed on those who had supported it. Um, we see a kind of reluctance on the part of politicians to sort of um, advocate for anything similar to that. That is definitely off the table. Trump tiptoes around it. I mean, he tries to sound tough, right? He tries to make it sound like he's willing to do anything, but he's not really willing to do anything. I think he knows. He has a dim knowledge in his monkey brain that that wouldn't be a very good idea, that that wouldn't come out very well for him. And after all, that is that is the compelling principle for Donald Trump is like, what is best for him? We'll see if he becomes the first president in our lifetimes to be held accountable. And I can, with that, I include Nixon. Sure. Nixon was, Nixon resigned from office. He was going to be impeached, but was he held accountable for what he did? Well, uh, they ended his presidency. So that's a kind of accountability, but not entirely. Was Johnson held accountable for what he did in Vietnam, for what he did in the Dominican Republic? No, not really. I think this is just something that, you know, we have to keep in in the forefront of our mind to some extent because these horrors are going to happen over and over again if we don't start holding people accountable. <laughs> I think if that principle works in any situation, that that old principle that I was talking about earlier, um, that rhetorical device that judicial and DA candidates used to use all the time in the 90s uh, about holding criminals responsible um, as a demonstration to other potential lawbreakers. Um, I think if that's if that principle holds true um, for anyone, it would certainly be politicians and people at the top of the leadership. It would certainly be worth a try. We'll see. Anyway, I think that's all I have to say about that. I'd like to know what you think. Should we hold our leaders accountable? Should we hold them to a higher standard than we hold ourselves to? Hmm. Tell me what you think. Go to anchor.fm slash strange sound. There you will find the means to leave me a one-minute voicemail. I will be happy to listen to it, even play it on the show. I'd be happy to turn this into a conversation. If you want to reach me by any other means, at anchor.fm slash strange sound, you will find links to our social media platforms. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter. Twitter at strange sound pod. 
Facebook, well, follow the link to Facebook. I don't think we have, <laughs> we don't have a uh, specialized link. We're on YouTube as well, but I'm basically just posting uh, these episodes on YouTube for, for the time being. Maybe go a little bit beyond that at some point. We'll see. Anyway, love to hear from you. Um, you can also find out more about us at big-green.net. Um, if you click on the podcast tab, you will find a link to Strange Sound as well. And be happy to hear from you. That's all I have for this week. This is Joe, and this has been episode 25 of Strange Sound. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.